amplifying diverse voices in the energy revolution. Here's your host, Amy Simpkins. Welcome back to the Power Flow Podcast. I am your host, Amy Simpkins, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest today, Erica Ginsburg Klempt, VP of Operations at Gizmo Power. In 1990, realizing that she wanted to see more of the world before she sold it, Erica abandoned an upwardly mobile position at a travel agency for a one-way ticket to the south of France. She lived and worked in Cannes, Paris, and Hamburg before embracing the liveaboard life with her husband on their sailboat Pangea for the last seven years. The spirit of Pangea's wandering website took form decades ago as an informal newsletter while she studied at UC Berkeley. Born in Laguna Beach, California, Erica became a grassroots tech nomad, faithfully maintaining her wireless internet updates while sailing around the globe. Then the word blog arrived on the scene, and she stopped writing for 20-plus years, raising her three kids, and establishing her first company, Circus, with which she bootstraps Gizmo Power. Now, she is a solar justice peace seeker and a Kochlufle. Now, Kochlufle is a word I had never heard of until five minutes ago, but I have now been informed. (laughs) And so we're just going to lay it out there, Erica. It means you're a shit starter. (laughs) That is what it means. Yes, basically. Anybody out there who knows a little bit of Yiddish will have heard that kachlafla, it literally means cooking spoon and it means you're stirring up the pot. You're making waves. You're breaking barriers. You're calling spades spades or whatever other uh, uh, problematic things that you uh, are inciting And yes, that's me. That was a great introduction, Amy. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you've certainly had a ton of adventures. You have a lot of wildly varied experience, which we love to see. And I love to talk to polymath people who have so many different interests that inform what they do now. So I would really love to start at the end And then we'll see how we go back to the beginning from there. I'd love to talk about Gizmo Power. Can you tell me about what you're doing at Gizmo Power and what you are most excited about right now? I would love to, Amy. I'm, first of all, very grateful for the opportunity to bring uh, our story to your listeners. Um, Gizmo Power was born through my daughter and my husband. My daughter, who is now a master's student at um, UC Berkeley for her mechanical engineering degree, um, she was back in 2020, or 2019 actually, out under the blistering sun uh, at her college, New College of Florida. Yes, the very same one that recently experienced a takeover with Ron DeSantis. Uh, and she was plugging in her Nissan Leaf and realizing this is ridiculous. They should have, you know, some sort of a solar shading carport here to both generate electricity and shade my car. Um, and she went home and talked to my husband about it. And we have solar panels plastering our roof. 
And my husband's like, you have no idea all the permitting that goes into it. It's such a headache to get solar. And they started uh, brainstorming on ways that they could get around all of the silly permitting and contractors and setbacks and all of the barriers associated with solar. And they came up with the idea of putting it on wheels. When you put it on wheels, there are a couple of things that happen. It's no longer a building. So guess who's outside of jurisdiction? Those building requirements was their first thought. The second thought is, my goodness, we can now wheel this in and out of harm's way. And also you can take it with you if you're a renter. So they started realizing it has all of this potential. Um, and the wheels aren't even the secretest of the secret sauce of my daughter and my husband's invention. The actual biggest challenge is not dealing with the wheels. The biggest challenge is the plug because their invention, this system electrifies the home as well as a car by means of a 240 volt split phase plug. Now, I am not an electrician. I am not an electrical engineer. I'm not a physicist. I'm not even a industrial designer. I'm none of those. But I know a plug when I see it. And I understand how you plug in that washer and dryer. I understand how you plug in your big old refrigerator. And nobody seems to have trouble with that. I could go out to Best Buy tomorrow and buy five washing machines and plug them all over my house. I could get a bunch of 240-volt plugs and plug in a ton of dryers. I could turn my place into a drying factory, and nobody would say a word. But as soon as that appliance generates electricity, feeding it back into the grid, or transforming my space into a prosumer space, suddenly, oh my God, all hell breaks loose. Suddenly we need all sorts of testing, validation, and safety requirements, this and that. What is the real danger of plug-in electricity? I ask my audience, I ask the PhDs who are listening out there, and the answer is the danger is to the bottom line of the utility companies. The Ooh, danger girl. is to the- <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Preach it. Go ahead. Keep going. I love it. I said to myself, I wouldn't talk too much. No, do, do, do. I'm loving this. This is amazing. All right. So uh, that is what we are seeing and we're seeing it firsthand. Now it's been very interesting, uh, the journey. I could go through the entire journey of Gizmo Power, but just like Amy said, let's start now at the very end. We are sitting here with a phase two, $1.1 million non-dilutive grant given by the Department of Energy, supported by their technicians to establish a new UL standard for plug-in electricity generating appliances. I would love for the mega to be the first. I assume it won't be the last. 
If anybody out there ever heard the story of, I guess it's the little bird who wanted to bake bread and she went house to house. Do you want to help me knead the bread? Nah. Do you want to help me uh, bake the bread? Nah. But as soon as that loaf is ready and the, and the slices are cut, boy, everybody's going to want a piece of it. So we somehow, this little hokey Ginsburg Klemp family, are tasked with the arduous challenge of establishing this standard. What is the standard going to look like? How is it going to work? Um, I'm happy to go into some of the technical details of it, but of course I can't go too far into that because my VP of engineer will have me for breakfast. So what I will tell you is this. We have something out there called an automatic shutoff. It's a UL 1741 standard for inverters. That means when the grid goes down, the system goes down. They need to do this in order to protect the workers upstream who are working hard to get the electricity back up. It makes perfect sense to me. But if you already have a system with that integrated, then what is the danger of generating your electricity and feeding it back to the grid automatically? Oh, we have to do impact analysis. No, you don't. You really don't have to do much of an impact analysis because even if every single solitary person had a five to 10 kilowatt uh, system in their driveway, they would be using their own electricity first and foremost. And then they would be using it for generation for their EVs. And finally, a certain amount of that electricity generation would be fed back to the grid. The possibility of the grid being overwhelmed by this is very unlikely. And we have something called a grid impact analysis from North Carolina State University. Let's go Freedom System Center. They were our first earliest adopter and purchaser of Omega. And they found out that used in... Uh, in if you do smart charging, in other words, if you're going to charge your car at particular times during the day, you can actually lower the duck curve and you can actually help the grid not have to put in so much infrastructure or upgrading their infrastructure. So um, there you go. It sounds like these regulatory bodies are saying that small residential and smaller even solar like the like the mega like these plug and play systems need to play by the same rules as megawatt multi megawatt solar farms is that what i'm hearing uh i won't go quite that far but i will answer that but let's also ask ourselves who are we talking about? Who is the AHJ, the authority having jurisdiction? The reality is that every little municipality, every county, every state have their own jurisdictions, their own rules and regulations, their own requirements. And there is no one way that anybody is getting interconnected out there. It's an absolute mess. So to answer that, I could only say it depends on the jurisdiction. It depends on who's uh, in charge. It's going to depend on the public uh, public utilities commissions. It's going to depend on, you know, whoever out there is making enough noise to bring up 
the issues at hand. So yes, for example, Dominion Energy, if you look at their interconnection handbook, they do require, you know, everything above a certain amount will get lumped in with these large interconnect uh, uh, agreements um, for utility scale and 20 megawatts, et cetera, and higher. Um, many jurisdictions, however, do have it more, more easy to get an interconnection agreement when it's smaller, but it's still arduous. And we still have the challenge of getting a single mega legally interconnected onto the United States grid somewhere. We have five of them already interconnected, but we call those interconnect disagreements. In other mm. words, the early enthusiast who has taken a mega into their driveway or into their parking lot already have an interconnect agreement. And this is just adding into their mix. They plug it in, it's lowering their bills, and maybe someday they're going to be dragged off to solar jail for generating their own electricity, God forbid. Oh, hopefully not. Um, hopefully so, not. Ha right. <laughs> so having a UL standard, your UL standard will um, maybe relieve some of the variations between AHJs. And by the way, just for the listeners, Dominion Energy, of course, being famously in Virginia and also famously um, having uh, very difficult uh, hurdles to jump through to get uh, energy systems deployed. So, right. um yeah. So is that the, the aim of the UL standard that we see that that will help um, at least standardize the process across AHJs and not have to jump through so many individualized hoops depending on where you are? That's certainly the theory. Of course, uh, a couple of years of applying for the standard will give them plenty of time to try to find another means by which to create a barrier. Um, you know, not wanting to sound cynical. And quite frankly, we have moved uh, uh, quite a bit of our company to Virginia because, my dear, everything is relative. And as unfriendly as Dominion Energy might seem to you, Virginia actually does have um, carbon uh, footprint uh, goals for diminishing our use of fossil fuels, unlike in Florida, where we started. Um, Florida, you're not even really allowed to use the word climate and the word change in the same sentence. Right. So uh, it really depends on, you know, a, 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 the beauty for me of Virginia is that Yes, it's going to be a challenge, but it has just the right amount of regulatory difficulty that we will make real strides there and just enough sun that uh, our our megas can really churn out the kilowatts uh, when deployed um, in, in various driveways and parking lots. So, for example, uh, we were accepting to Delta Climb Vermont um, and and went through a wonderful accelerator program there. We look forward to also having pilot projects in Vermont. How much electricity are those megas going to create throughout the year? Uh, you probably can dock about, I don't know the exact percentage, 12 but 12 megawatt hours as opposed to 20 in Vegas. 20 in Vegas. So we're talking like 
almost close to 50% less generation. But boy, you know, from what I understand, all we're going to need is a letter of public good. We still have to get one legally interconnected there as well. And that's going to be our big challenge, Amy. In the next year, uh, we are looking to get those interconnection agreements pre-UL. That's kind of our dual insertion uh, strategy at this point. Yeah, I, I love that. I love seeing like the parallel path of demonstrating the technology and showing that it works and showing that it's safe, showing that it can be easy. And at the same time saying, hey, there are non-technical roadblocks to this. There are things that have to be addressed at a regulatory level that can help more than just this technology. Because I think, um, you know, ease of interconnection, especially for small systems, would really explode growth. Um, there are certainly a lot of people who are interested out there. And from my seat, you know, seeing the explosion, I mean, you started off with an example of plugging in your Nissan Leaf. I'm also a Leaf driver, by the way. Um, oh. I love that little car. Um, you know, but, you know, people who are coming into the electric vehicle transition whether that's because they have, you know, they're green minded and they are sustainability conscious or because kilowatt hours are way less expensive than gallons of gasoline. Um, you know, they're I'll thinking about a third this. reason too that Amy already mentioned, but people don't talk about this very much. It's fun to run on sun. It's fun. It's <laughs> awesome. I know. I really need to trademark that one right next to make electricity great again, which uh, is what the mega stands for. Uh Uh, (laughs) Oh, man, I love it. uh, Um, It is fun to run on sun. You know, whether you believe in climate change or not, it's cheaper in the end. It's fun to not have to go and get uh, to go get um, gas. It's fun to sit at a red light and not make a peep of sound. It's fun to sit in traffic and not be exuding fumes. It's fun to go from red to green and beat the Porsche next to you. It's fun to run on sun. It is. I was gonna, I was like, you better be talking about instantaneous torque because man, if you like hot cars, like your little tiny Nissan Leaf can beat anything on the road. It's amazing. Instantaneous. Okay. Once you get up to 45, 50 miles an hour, they usually zoom by at that point, but boy, those red to greens are fun, fun, fun. (laughs) Totally. Have you ever, I know we're not supposed to do this, but you ever been in the wrong lane in the front and realizing, oh, well, it turns green. It's no problem. I could just sneak into that lane because they cannot get there before you. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. Well, we we always joke because, so our leaf is quite old. And so the battery capacity has diminished. We use it yeah. as a daily driver for like, you know, commuting to school and stuff. But, and so normally we're, we're the like granny driver. We're like one under the speed limit because we're yeah. like, we got to save our capacity. But man, yeah. when you need that, like when it's you need there. to like get on that ramp and get out in front of somebody, you've you've got everything you need right there. It's amazing. Well, let's oh. let's just see who has the older leaf. Okay, you first. I have I have two 2012s and one 2011. 
Well, it's hard to beat a 2011. That was the first year of the leaf. Uh, mine's a 2012. It so is there you awesome. go. It is. No, okay, it is. Uh, um, yeah. Fantastic. Well, let's let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about um, in a, the path to innovation here because we have a ton to talk about. I would love that. We're back here at the PowerFlow podcast talking today to Erica Ginsburg Klempt and Gizmo Power talking about solar plug-in appliances that can generate the electricity that you need for uh, for all of your power needs and interconnect in an easy way. Um, take it with you when you need it because it's modular and, and movable and all these things. So I want to get into a little bit of the path to innovation. And again, let's start at the present and then go backwards. I, you, we met actually through the Department of Energy's Small Business Innovative Research Program. And um, I'm so excited to hear that you're moving through your phase two. My company is in our phase one, so we're looking ahead and hoping to be in your shoes in a year. Um, but so tell me about um, applying to for the SIBR and what a difference that it has made for you. Well, we'll start out. We won the Aussie Genius Award, and then after that, we applied for VentureWell E-Team Grant. We received that one, and then we went on to the American Made Solar Prize, won the Ready version, and then the Set version. And during that time, we really started seeing that we had something here, that this was the mouse that roared, the David versus Goliath, the, the little product that really could move the needle. And so we started out, you know, we applied for this uh, SBIR phase one. And probably, as you may know, Amy, we, we got support from something called Dawnbreaker. Uh, Dawnbreaker is a phase zero uh, grant writing support from the DOE for uh, newcomers to the grant writing industry. And they helped us to, you know, create our narrative and set up the commercialization plan, et cetera. And what we found is with the phase one, you have to have very clear goals, you know, go, no, go milestones. Whether you achieve those goals or not are less important than indicating the amount of effort to achieve them, what has been achieved, and identifying whatever barriers were there to achieving them. So that was very important to us because we had the highfalutin goal of getting, you know, a number of, of units interconnected within the first phase one. That did not occur. And we were afraid that we wouldn't get the phase two, but we were able to articulate why we weren't getting the phase one, what seemed to be the best pathway to go in order to get these interconnect agreements. And it looks like the DOE agreed that those were important milestones. So that's that's how we ended up um, getting our our phase two. And quite frankly, we also have have shifted s slightly from the idea of, you know, plug and play overnight to very likely having to get a number of these as ground mounted permits to start with 
Um, my husband and the rest of the company doesn't necessarily like me making this analogy, but I have a hard time finding anything better. When you think of marijuana, and everybody may have wanted it 10 years ago, but it was a felony and you would have been thrown in jail or prison or worse uh, if you used it. By the same token, we have here, you know, an, an illegal system, you know, or a nice, we're, we can't have it permitted. So one incremental step towards that would be the ground mounted permits. So now it becomes just a vanilla flavored carport again. You have to own your uh, dirt that you're going to install it into. You have to abide by setbacks. You can't have HOAs or other people who are going to say that you can't have your permanent structures in your parking lots or in your driveways. And suddenly it becomes another hobby for the rich, which is not what we are heading for. But you've got to start somewhere. So that seems to be the lowest hanging fruit is going ahead and applying for ground mounted permits because uh, one of the accessories to the solar carport uh, appliance are not just the wheels, but also ground anchors. So you can anchor it down and it has the same windage as any other solar carport. Um, and it's still modular and scalable and it's still quite frankly movable, but you have to take off the anchors. So we will be going for that as well. Nice. So it sounds like you've done a fair bit. Obviously you've been getting a fair bit of funding. You've been doing some accelerators, which might be on a more, I would say, traditional path of a startup that's like intended to move towards private funding or, you know, that sort of investment. And then there's also this, um, the federal grant programs, SIBR and the, the prize challenges and stuff like that. What do you see as the difference? Do you, it's, I, it's rare that I get to talk to someone who's kind of seen both sides of that funding. And I'm, tell me about how you feel they each contribute to innovation or create an innovative environment or not? Well, I, I can speak for myself. We, uh, for our company, we have to date refused all offers for venture capital. We have not created the same type of business plan that would be attractive to private investment be it angel investors or uh, or any other dilutive funding. We have our reasons for doing that. First of all, for me, you know, <laughs> it, it makes no sense for me to make another company wealthy off of the backs of moderate income Americans. And that is our target. That's what we want. We don't want to make these more expensive so that there are, you know, the profit is going to go into the pockets of the investors. We want a Justice 40 solution. There's so much talk about getting renewable energy into, quote, the hands of lower and moderate income Americans. But in reality, even these community solar initiatives, they don't own anything there. That is not their asset. If they're not owning their house, they're not going to be owning their solar unless it's portable. So that is my cry out into the wilderness. And that is our business model. So when I'm sitting in these accelerators, I adore my cohort. 
I have nothing against the fact that they aren't able to bootstrap their companies and that they're needing other people's money to accelerate. Um, I am grateful for the DOE. We feel like we're public servants, much more of a public servant, much more of an activist than I am an entrepreneur. So uh, the answer to that is really, I think that there's a space for both. But I also believe that if you really do have a Justice 40 solution, something that is made for tribal communities, something that is made for people who don't own their own homes, then, you know, why not go to the government for support? Why not go to nonprofits for support or coalitions or groups that, recognize that we need to be able to put these as assets into the hands of people who want to generate their own electricity. I cannot tell you how much I personally needed that pep talk right now. So I'm going to take that clip and I'm going to listen to it every morning. I very, very, very much. Uh, We're going to catch up after this and talk more about that, but thank you you so much for bringing that on board. You're oh man. <laughs> oh, you're speaking my language. Um and so here I would love to hear just a little bit more like it sounds like this is a family enterprise. You've got a lot of idea people around you, probably runs in the family. And I'm wondering about kind of have you has this always have you always had this spirit of innovation is this you know, how you live. Obviously you think outside the box, uh, in many different ways throughout your life, but tell me a little bit about that. Like, how did this come to be? And, um, how is it kind of locking yourself into, into a concept right now? How does that feel? I'd love to, I'll go way back to, you know, I worked at a, at a travel agency when travel agencies were all the rage in the 80s. And I gave up that life for a one-way ticket to the south of France, where I met my husband, who was the founder of Greenpeace in Hamburg, also in the 80s. So he's already been quite the activist. When we jumped on the sailboat together and we sailed the seven seas for a number of years, um, at one point we saw certain injustices in French Polynesia. And it was just at the beginning of the internet. And while other people who would be cruising and living in French Polynesia would be climbing up to, you know, tiki huts and gin fizzes and enjoying themselves on the beaches, we were spending hours, literally hours in our cockpit, writing letters to, you know, the European Commission and to, uh, you know, the Territoire Outre-mer, translating things into French, um, you know, active in making the changes that we saw necessary. And we did move the needle. And if you go to our uh, legacy website, which is over 25 years old now, you can see the, the activities we were doing. So in many ways, we never have stopped pushing ourselves against the powers that be. It's just kind of been our modus operandi. I wouldn't even know what our our marriage would look like if we didn't have that. Then, of course, our firstborn, Antonia, who's born, by the way, in Hawaii and is trilingual, she is an absolute, she makes me look shy. I mean, she is just the most outgoing, just most cheerful, amazing, positive person. And she's an athlete on top of it and, and, and very, very, very active. Um, Her energy and that youthfulness 
is such a critical aspect of all this, Amy. I mean, me and you, we're sitting here, we've got our kids, we're, you know, looking at our golden age, but really they're the folks who are inheriting this mess and they're the ones that are going to be pulling this forward. So we would be nowhere without our co-patent holder, Antonia, who I would love for you to talk with another time. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, that's that's kind of how it's been. Uh, we've always been kind of pushing the needle in, in the many things that we've done. Well, that that is an amazing story. And I, I really appreciate yeah. you sharing about how you got here. Um, so exciting and inspiring. I am so excited to see where Gizmo Power goes, because this seems like it's feeling filling a major need. Um, easy and it's an accessibility issue, the ease of the access to clean energy. So before we wrap up here, I just want to give you the opportunity, you know, what have we missed here? What, what, what is your takeaway for our listeners? Thank you for asking Amy. Um, It's not going to be easy to turn out these megas and, and have them deployed in all of the driveways that really want it. Uh, across the United States so quickly. We do see the possibility of, A, working with the Department of Defense because they don't have the same uh, regulatory barriers that civilian uh, world needs to look at. So they may be ending up some of the first earliest adopters. The second um, market that I see that would be really good for the mega is our tribal nations and indigenous uh, nations that would have their own jurisdiction as well. So as we're moving forward, for example, with the Solar for All initiative, and there's going to be various programs for disadvantaged communities, I am looking to partner with um, other Solar for All recipients on that. And then finally, we are looking for early enthusiastic adapter adopters who are interested in having a mega and will work with us to get those interconnection agreements. Um, one of the things I'm thinking of devising in the next three to six months is a challenge on Hero X. I don't know if you're familiar with Hero X. They do the American Made Solar Challenge. That's where we uh, first got our our insertion. Um, it's a wonderful interface. And that would be a place that we could do an interconnection contest. And we want to get people involved across the nation. Whether they're able to afford a mega or not is not as important as actually getting the interconnect agreements. If we get an interconnect agreement, then we can go back and look at what kind of financial leverage there is, what kind of products would be out there able to finance these in uh, both disadvantaged communities and moderate income uh, businesses, for example. And uh, imagine, you know, you're paying this off for five years and after that, the cream, the, the, the rest of it is yours. Uh, and then you own your generation. So that's, that's our vision of going forward. And I hope uh, anybody who's interested will go to gizmopower.com and reach out. Amazing. That's gizmopower.com with an S, G-I-S-M-O, and then the word power.com. Is that the best way to get in touch with you? I think that's a great way. I'm also Erica at gizmopower.com and that's with a K. So a K and an S. Well, Erica, very, I'm very, very grateful to have met you. I'm very grateful to have you on the show. 
This was an amazing conversation. We'll definitely have to get Antonia on here because I'd love to get her take on it. Um, but thank you so much for bringing your innovative spirit today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. It was a joy. And thank you, listener, for being here today. Uh, we're always grateful that you're sharing your time with us. Um, and it it really prompts me to ask you about, as a listener, as a uh, climate conscious person, you know, don't underestimate your ability to see a gap in the space and say, hey, that needs to change. I could really use something different because regular people like you are making great strides and potentially changing the face of the way that we do electricity in this country. You don't have to be an engineer um, and you don't have to be an entrepreneur, uh, in, you know, to start out. So um, hopefully you found this just as inspiring as I did. And uh, we will definitely see you guys next time here at the whiteboard. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the power flow podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please share the episode with other innovators, leave us a positive review, and subscribe to PowerFlow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find show notes for this episode, more great conversations, PowerFlow merchandise, and more at PowerFlowPodcast.com. PowerFlow is hosted by Amy Simpkins, produced by Devin Shanchek, and managed by Laura Novak. See you next time here at the whiteboard.